1: Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply that proves that award season really is a year-round event. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with Vanity Fair's digital director, Mike Hogan.
2: Hello, Katie. And
1: Vanity Fair's film critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. Mike, you're uh, singing because you got the Tonys in your heart, This is right? a Tonys
2: episode. Yeah. I was trying to be <laughs> Tonys-ish.
1: Well, it's an award show to talk about that actually matters in this uh, long summer before Oscar season returns. The Broadway award show brought in the best ratings it's had in 15 years, and, uh, you know, Hamilton was a big part of that, but also a uh, James Corden as the host. And we kind of wanted to know what the... The other award shows could learn from the Tonys, maybe, even though the Tonys have always kind of been the little sibling of the Oscars and the Golden Globes, et cetera. And then from there, we'll talk about a piece that our own Julie Miller wrote for VF.com yesterday uh, about how very few millennials are buying tickets to movies this summer, or at least fewer of they are dropping off in numbers larger than the rest of the population. Uh, this is supposed to be the season where Hollywood makes a huge amount of its money. And uh, does that mean it's time to panic instead? But first, the weekend Oscar news, which is really the weekend Richard Lawson party going news. <laughs> we, yeah. I, uh, we found out right before we started recording this that you went to see what is a kind of a sleeper Oscar contender, but uh, probably a real one, Florence Foster Jenkins. Uh, uh, it has a real in it, which automatically puts it on our radar. But exactly. uh, what else? Uh, why is this movie getting the full like award season treatment in the middle of June?
3: Well, you know, it's a, it's a period piece was set in the 1940s biopic about this, um, you know, aristocratic woman of New York City who was, a, who was a really actually honorable patron of the arts for her whole life. And, you know, uh, so I went to the screening last night and there was a and a afterward with Meryl, Meryl Streep. And she said, you know, that like all true sort of lovers of the arts, she really just wanted to do the art, you know, mm-hmm. um, but she wasn't you know she had been a piano player and had some some uh, an illness that made her not be able to play anymore so she pursued singing instead and with her vast wealth could secure the finest instructors and and, you know an accompanist to help her practice and um and yet was like a kind of ear shatteringly awful singer (laughs) and she had aspired to be this sort of coloratura soprano and it was so i mean you know it wasn't like she was singing like um you know little folk tunes and you can kind of get away with a bad voice this was like the best singers in the world have trouble with this music so but she you know, despite that, she had a, a, a like a legion of loyal fans who were you know, a lot of the people in her line of immediate artistic and arist- aristocratic community. But then she a, a record that she had recorded privately sort of got out into the public and she became this kind of cult figure. And she performed, uh, I mean, she she preserved her space with her money, but she performed at Carnegie Hall shortly before her death uh, in 1944. And so the movie kind of follows that process. And it's, so yeah, I think it has a lot. It has uplift. It has a great uh, star performance from Meryl Streep. It has wonderful uh, co-lead performance from Hugh Grant of all people. So I don't know. I think. I think. Uh, yeah. Here in June, it could uh, have emerged as one of the first contenders I've seen this year.
1: And it, and it opens in uh, early August, which I, I always refer to as the Help slot or the Julian Julia slot—the kind of late summer yeah. like movie for grown-ups that has worked really well for Meryl Streep in particular in the past. But the Butler was in that spot. I mean, it's a—it's kind of a, a way to get yourself in the conversation with a, maybe a lighter movie that wouldn't stand a chance in November, right?
3: And they put Michael Keaton in that spot this year with uh, the, the the founder, founder yeah. yeah, with the McDonald's guy by Opec, yeah.
2: I mean, is Meryl Streep convincing as someone who's bad at something? Because I feel like that's (laughs) going to be a little bit of a hurdle for her.
3: Yeah, I mean, the funny thing about it is that when you listen to the actual audio of Florence Foster Jenkins, she's bad, but she's like better than I would be, you know, like she's like, so getting that kind of middle ground of like, I mean it's noticeably awful, but like There are some notes that aren't, you know, that kind of hit and she really has clearly studied this audio and and, and she's good at it. And then, yeah, um, but I
2: meant more emotionally. Oh, like how does Meryl Streep get herself in the head of someone who like desperately wants to be good at something, but actually stinks at it? That's a good question. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I think that I
3: think that what's central to that character is um, her own kind of dogged belief that she's. Very good, yeah. And maybe that's the well that Meryl
2: Streep is drawing from in her right. own
3: experience. <laughs> you know,
2: you know, you can still do that. You can rent out Carnegie Hall. I actually went. I used to edit programs for Carnegie Hall, and I actually went to one of these vanity performances, and it was horrible. They played <laughs> uh, Handel's Messiah, and this guy turned out he was from my hometown. Every year he would do this concert, and he gave me tickets like like fifth row center. And I walked out. Yeah. Oh, wow. I left. He looked at me while I was leaving. Wow. But I just couldn't take it. Isn't yeah. that awful? I hate yeah. myself still for there's, that.
1: There's too much money. In this New York is City. this episode is gonna be all about my <laughs> self hatred. By the way, just warning everybody when it comes to musicians, mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: So
3: live how performances. Was the, uh,
1: how was the worshipful crowd around Merrill? Did people just lose their minds that they were? In her yeah.
3: Minds? You know, it was um it was one of these Peggy Siegel events, and so she kind of curates the list with you know a lot of um you know Diane sower Barbara Walters, Christine Baranski was there, Edie Falco, and then you had kind of like Jamokes like me and my <laughs> guest and and then a weird mix of like I think I don't know just sort of ladies of the town you know and so there were these three women sitting next to me who you know uh fine. It wasn't too much of a distraction, but they were talking throughout the whole movie. Like, oh, look at that. Oh, that's so me. That's, you know. And then (laughs) when at the Q&A, when Meryl Streep walks out, just dead silence. I mean, like, they were Mm -hmm. like there for the Q&A. They were totally there for Uh the Uh Q&A. It sounds like
1: they were into the movie, though. They were just Yeah,
3: they were engaged. I think everyone was. I think the audience reaction, it was, you know, at the DGA Theater on 57th Street, which Mm -hmm. is a a nice good-sized house for a small screening room. And uh, it, yeah, it played really well, you know, and I think the first, they, they do, the movie does a really, it's directed by Stephen Frears, and the movie does a really good job of um, building toward the first time we hear her sing like it's not it doesn't come right away um, and it's maybe twenty minutes into the movie, and so they sell it really well, and it and that was really when the audience, I think, was was fully uh in
2: with. Don't you think it's unfair for Meryl Streep just to come through with like an awards worthy movie almost every year? It's yeah. just like it, give someone else a chance.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, Stephen Frears too, like, has a really big track record with the Oscars, and like it, it's not reliable. Like, he made The Queen, and in the next movie he made Cherie with with Michelle Pfeiffer just dropped off the face of the planet. Right. His last movie was the Lance Armstrong movie, The Program, which also dropped off the face of the planet. Yeah. Yeah. before that it was Philomena, which was the, that kind of movie where yes. like it seems really slight and why would anyone care about this movie and then you see it it's really thoughtful and heartfelt and i really i really like that movie yeah
3: i think he's good at that and i think that this movie um has that same quality where um it could be played as a kind of a silly you know sort of dizzy comedy about this weird rich lady but he finds the real emotional undercurrent there and so he gives meryl streep and hugh grant um who's her her devoted husband a lot to play um and actually in some weird way the movie is more focused on hugh grant's character you know obviously meryl streep gets the big showcase singing numbers and and the real heavy emotional beats but but Hugh Grant's characters definitely are sort of eyes into the world of the movie. It, does
2: that mean that Meryl could be a supporting rather than? I mean, it's her. It's about th- her. Yeah. She's named.
3: I, I, in I, yeah. Title I, title I think they would have okay. trouble doing that. Um, much in the same way that you could have argued that Carol of Carol was a supporting. Right. Part. I mean, but that didn't work out. So. Yeah. But I don't know. I think that they could both be. You know, uh, we'll see. I think that, you know, you and I, we, all three of us, were just talking about how we got our Toronto credential email today, <laughs> and I'm just like, I was like, I don't even have, I have no concept right now of what would even be at the festival. So. I think that my uh, my far-reaching knowledge of this season is is a little bit dim right now. So this to me seems like a sure thing. But I mean, wow, was, sure. yeah. I'm
1: just excited to see Hugh Grant come back. I feel like it's been a long time since we've got. Yeah, you know, and a they're good really
3: good. Coming. And you know, he's probably what 12 years younger than she is, I think. And and but they 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 play very naturally as husband and wife, and you really kind of buy this peculiar sort of kind of arrangement that they have with each other. And yeah, I mean, I just you know, I, I left feeling really good, and then I got to go to this party and saw. You know, I was in the elevator going up with Carol Kane, which was really exciting. Mm. And then on the way out, I was in the elevator with Miss Streep, which was quite exciting. Hey, now. What did and you do
2: with Let's hear kids? everything <laughs> about the elevator ride with Well, so my
3: friend and I um, were waiting to meet her. There had been this kind of, you know, we sort of very, there was a sit-down dinner and we waited. We didn't want to interrupt her at her table or anything like that. But at the end of the night, as she was about to leave, there was kind of this waiting you know, scrum of people who are just sort of politely going to say hi. Which I was saying to my friend, like that must be so weird every time you leave something. There, there's this <laughs> expectation yeah. you're going to Or gonna enter have this, or anything. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, we were we were really very patiently, I think, waiting our turn, and then this guy. Was like, oh hey, can you? Uh, she said she would take a picture with me and my wife. Can you? Can you take the picture? So he handed his phone to my friend. Oh god! And then we had to stand there for fifteen minutes holding this guy's phone, and then mm. we took the picture, and then and then she was like, okay, you're like good night, and then like left. So we thought we had missed our our chance to say hello. And then I just ended up, I, I, you know, we're both fast walkers, and we didn't really realize that she was right behind us. And we walked into the elevator and then turned around, and then there she was. So she was, you know, she just, it was like a short elevator ride. Normal elevator But, um, you know, I said, oh, we really love the movie. And, and she said, you know, it's nice to have a little tonic sometimes and then and then, sort of Amazing. returned to talk her publicist. <laughs> and we were like trying to think that over and then we decided that she was talking about like the, the uplift of the movie. Yeah, it's the like, movie It's a, a feel-good, even though there's sort of sadness in it, it's like a feel-good movie. I think that's what she was referring to. It's either that or a gin reference. W- right, who, who knows? Who <laughs> that knows? sounds right. But that sounds right. Regardless, she was wearing, I, I don't know, four-inch heels. She looked fantastic because oh um, she's kind of like, she wore like a sort of padded suit in the movie because um, the real Jenkins was a, a bigger woman and so it was... In a, it was funny to see the movie and then have her come out and just this very sort of, you know, slim, glamorous,
2: but, you know, in, in that recent story that we ran the cover story, which was all about her kind of battle with Dustin Hoffman, right. Um, on Kramer versus Kramer, Kramer, you you know, you get a sense from that of her being, you know, knowing she was great, but not having the status yet and really kind of having to fight and that it was this, sort. I mean, Dustin Hoffman was acting like seemingly a big jerk in that period. but, now she's just in full flower don't you get that feeling whenever you see her she's just like this is she kind of this is where she belongs like she has accomplished what she knew she would accomplish from the beginning and now she's just kind of enjoying life don't you think yeah totally
3: um so the q a was uh, moderated by william ivy long who is of course this lauded costume designer i believe he's either the chairman or the president of the american theater wing like this is a big guy in his industry in his field And he was seemed very nervous (laughs) to interview her. And they were like friends from Yale. And she just, you know, was very held her own, like sort of decided what she wanted to answer and what didn't. And, you know, it was just a very like she just seemed. What didn't she answer? Oh, I mean, you know, she had these kind of like long questions and she would sort of answer a portion of them or maybe just kind of pivot and just Mm -hmm. kind of say something else about whatever. And it was very much like she could have just kind of extemporaneously talked. She didn't need the sort of buffer of someone interviewing her. Did
1: she talk about playing Trump at Shakespeare in the Park?
3: no
2: sadly she
1: Man. didn't i wish that
3: oh yeah no been, trump was yeah. any
2: trump conversation no he didn't he didn't ask her he was a very uh, sort of that must have been negotiated i'm upfront. sure yeah or maybe yeah. He's there's just a not corner of there. the yeah. world right. where no right. one's talking
1: about donald trump for a while it's probably yeah. a good thing yeah.
2: yeah probably good but yeah it was a lovely uh you know
3: early summer uh late spring evening with miss streep and and it's a movie that i really you know had been on my radar just because of who was in it but i didn't have any expectations for liking it and was really happily surprised so i would i would urge everyone to keep an eye on that one. Florence Foster Jenkins. Yeah, let's start here. All
2: right.
0: When I was 16 years old, my father told me that if I didn't give up music, he'd cut me off. Of course, he didn't understand. Music is my life.
2: Cosme McMoon?
0: That's me, sir. My stroke. This is the talented young man I was telling you about. Let's get started.
2: She's remarkable, isn't
0: she? She can be a little flat. Flat? It defies medical science. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, the New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for the New Yorker Radio Hour
1: So the Tony Awards were held on Sunday night and uh, they earned really great ratings, which was expected because Hamilton is a phenomenon and James Corden is a fairly popular host, but was also probably uh, more than CBS could possibly have hoped for. Uh, and it was also a pretty good show. I mean, Richard, you and I both watched it. I, I, at one point I turned on Game of Thrones, but I had watched most of the show by then, so I give mm-hmm. myself credit. And Mike, you've caught up on some of the highlights since then. Richard, why did why was this a show that made me delay watching Game of Thrones? Like what, what made this so worth watching this year?
3: Well, I think the Hamilton factor is probably chief among it for for most people. You know, you talked about the ratings being the highest in 15 years. I think Hamilton is probably solely to to, to credit for that. But I think also, you know, uh, the show opened... In two interesting ways, one of which was, of course, at the very top of the show, um, Corden had to acknowledge what had happened in Orlando and, um, you know, just because it was a mind boggling tragedy, but also because the gay community and the theater community are, as we all know, in- inextricably linked. And so, you know, so it began with this very sort of respectful, somber note and then did a nice, you know, sort of 180 and into the kind of planned, rehearsed uh, opening number, which was a fun throwback to kind of the. The sort of either Tony's openers or Oscar openers, where they would kind of insist themselves into different shows or movies, and and he just yeah, had a it. Billy Crystal opening the Oscar e- type vibe, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. And and I think that the really nice kind of punch of um, talking about little kids and then growing up to be on the Tony stage, and they did a nice sort of reveal that all the acting nominees were on stage at the end of the you know at the, end, the end of the, the number the musical acting the nominees. musical acting nominees
2: exactly. Oh, you can really believe that too with James Corden when he's like, hey, if you're. Like like A little dorky kid at home, like this could be you someday because yeah. he was that dorky kid like 18 months ago, I think.
1: <laughs> <Yeah. right? laughs> no, no one seriously. even knew who yeah. he was. Yeah. yeah, well, in the US, I think he was pretty right famous in UK, yeah, well, yes. basically, yeah,
3: but yeah, and I think that. So I think that everyone was really in, in in need of some levity and some sort of inspiration uh, after a really rough day of news. And um, so, yeah, I think that really propelled well into the show. And then there was just this kind of compelling narrative about, OK, how many wars is Hamilton going to win? Right. and You know, et cetera. So I think I think they did it really well. I think it was not I, I wish sometimes that there had been a little bit more. um spreading of the wealth in terms of what shows had won but when you have a phenomenon like Hamilton I mean it's a really sort of its mandate is sort of undeniable I think maybe on the play side of things like there was a little bit of variance but um, but yeah I mean I think that it, uh, it might not have been the most compelling show in terms of like surprise winners or anything like that but um, I think that they made up for that in other ways
1: yeah Mike so you watched the opening number which I you as you're we saying is kind of has a Billy Crystal vibe about it like does it feel like something that anything but the Tonys could ever get away with, like where you have all the the singing and dancing. I mean, you've got like the Tonys lend themselves so much to stagecraft, which is what award shows are. And it's like, this is how we wind up with movie montages that everyone thinks are so pointless. Like the Tonys has such an ace in the hole. But I I just feel like there's got to be something we can capture from this for the Oscars, et cetera.
2: Yeah, I mean, let's first talk about what no one else can do. I mean, the fact is that all of the people on that stage are really good at acting and singing in front of a live audience and also are thirsty enough to like do anything that anybody tells them to do if they're going to get to be on TV. Whereas if you're talking about, you know, movie stars, a lot of them, basically the main credential for being a movie star is that when somebody puts a camera on you and then projects it on a giant screen, you have to kind of be somebody that people can't take their eyes off. So whether or not you can act is almost irrelevant. And a lot many of them can act and many of them can't. And you know some of the people on that stage you are familiar from TV, less so movies, but I don't know that you can really ask a bunch of movie stars to go up and kind of put on that kind of show. I think it's hard, and so so then you're finding yourself, uh, you know, right there at a disadvantage. But I mean, it was it like Richard said, it was it was a callback almost to some of that Billy Crystal stuff. I think having somebody like James Corden who's also like up for anything too and trying to prove himself helps bring a lot of energy to it, having that theme of like, you can do this, like reaching out to those kids. There's such a different thing in the theater of theater kids. There's a community of them around the country. And I was one of them. And you know, you're an underdog. Like you, you you certainly feel that way because you're not on the football team, you know, and you're not you're not on the basketball team, you're not a cheerleader, you're kinda like a dork. And they tend to do well later in life. It's it's like it's a actually was believable the whole thing. Yeah. So uh, I don't know, how do the Oscars tap into I, I wouldn't I wouldn't know where to start with the Oscars, how do you tap into like an exciting narrative that way and say there's some reason to watch this other than us just congratulating one another on being freaks of nature? <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: It's easy to forget that Seth MacFarlane did some version of this when he hosted the Oscars where he had Charlize Theron and Channing Tatum kind of come out and do this like dance together. And it was like very old fashioned. That was kind of of the like jazz standard version of Seth MacFarlane.
2: Correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't the whole problem with Seth? Seth's thing was really the message, which was kind of like a wasn't it sort of it seemed like a. Not very inspiring message of like well, I'm a kind of a witty straight guy who's gonna make fun of everybody. Yeah, I mean, well, he yeah. kind
1: of wrecked it all with, and he did the whole We Saw Your Boobs song later in the show, which yeah, is now like think was. about. Yes. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I mean, he had such a different vibe than James Corden, but does seem to have the love of the old school song and dance thing that I think is why they hired him to do the Oscars. I mean, I don't know. You can have James or, Corden host the Oscars. As far I mean, as
2: well. Hugh Jackman tried to do something
1: similar well, too. Yeah. Right?
3: Remember he brought Anne Hathaway up on stage and she sang with him first. Mm-hmm. He like pulled her out of her seat and you know I mean it was obviously she pre- did a Frost planned. Nixon
1: joke, which really plants that in history. And I
3: think that was an interesting experiment in melding the kind of Tonys, because two Jackmans hosted the Tonys very successfully before, um, in melding the Tonys kind of, you know, let's put on a show like Moxie and and Uncynicism with the Oscars sort of more glam remove. I don't know that it quite works, and I think that you're right, Mike, there is kind of a big divide there in terms of of, of the talent pool and the kind of talent that it is. I think that one thing that the Tonys... I mean let's you know address a a sort of more sociological thing is you look at the winners of the Tonys on Sunday night and like they a, a diversity issue uh, was a lot like a lot lesser there. I mean like they yes. they had like um, all four nom- winners in the musical acting categories were people of color and you know a, re- a really diverse array of nominees beyond that um, and I think that's something that, that the uh, the movie industry in general could look to in th- from theater but in terms of the Tonys uh, versus the Oscars I think that that general just sort of like they really kind of pull people out of the shadows and it's this exciting moment and the Tony really means that it's kind of like a, a career starting or a career confirmed and um, and the oscars mean that too but it, it always feels a little slicker and sleeker and i think it's a little bit harder to emotionally hook into
2: well nobody's buying movie stars as underdogs you know right. and there's something mm-hmm. i mean not to keep hitting the same thing but like it's it's not really inspiring i mean it's yeah. inspiring in a kind of way of like wow it would be nice to be at the absolute pinnacle of the world right but that's there there's no ladder coming down there and so i don't know how you kind of get people excited i it's well, tricky I, I
1: mean when you see something like lapida Yango win, like she's someone who was like fresh out of yale drama oh, like true. she was nobody like that's the kind of oscar story that everyone wants to tell brie larson to some extent like she had been working forever to get to the point where she was i mean when george Clooney wins an oscar it's one thing but you do have these come from uh, come from nothing stories that's what the oscars are all built on it's like every other best actress nominee has that narrative so there's some of it to it but then they go on to be Rich and famous movie stars starring Kong Skull Island, and then you get to uh, a. <laughs> <they get laughs> that
3: doesn't last long.
1: Yeah. yeah,
3: yeah. I went to one of the, the the parties after after the show to do a little write up about it, but also just to like try to like get out of my head and um and it was really it was a nice party it was it was not the hamilton party which was sort of where everyone you know wanted to be but one thing i noticed you know there were as you as you would i'm sure i'm sure have seen at the vf oscar party and and other post awards things you know people walking around kind of cradling their awards and people kind of well-wishing i found that for my own purposes because it was a tony's because it was theater people who i sort of still feel like are my people I, w- I was introducing myself to people. I said yeah. hello to Andrew Lloyd Webber and George C. Wolfe and Reed Burney, who was a best uh, fe- featured actor winner on Sunday night. You know, and I think that that sort well, of, I
2: knew about this because we received several complaints the next morning. Actually, Oh, oh right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> this will be my last episode. Yeah. That's what um, <laughs> Andrew Lloyd Webber has shut down
1: this yeah. podcast.
2: Oh, I know all yeah. about this. Richard. Yeah. I got six oh. emails about it. Oh, oh
3: God. God. Okay. But you know, I think that there's something about the Tony's accessibility and maybe that's for a really kind of niche audience member, like, you know, a theater person or who or someone who is a fan of theater. But they so for for that reason, they, they sort of emotionally more resonate with me. But yeah. I still think the Oscars sweep me away more uh, in their sort of grandeur. But um, I'm just glad both exist, frankly.
1: Yeah. And yeah. if more if people can watch the Tonys and they can see something like that opening number, even in a year when there's not a Hamilton that's like an actual bestseller album, like hopefully yeah. people I mean it's hard when you to engage in the contest when it's all shows you haven't seen before, which I think we're
2: right. I have mean Hamilton album. is the reason, as you said, that people were watching this year and the this kind of uplifting spirit fits in with what Hamilton's all about, sure. right? Mm-hmm. It's a whole like I'm not gonna miss my shot yeah. thing. And in many years there there isn't that and I guess, you know, it doesn't have the same vibe. And I and I don't want to trash the Oscars because I just think it's a really hard show to pull off it's just tough and it's unclear exactly what you can do other than hand out awards and have nice speeches part of me thinks you just do that and make it an hour Uh and a half yeah. No, well, yeah.
1: Having it. Well, that's what the SAG awards are. They're just speeches yeah. and they're great. Yeah. I mean, and we talked, you know, we were talking about Lil little Miranda's uh, speech uh, earlier where he gives he read a sonnet, which is uh, he doesn't it wasn't a freestyle rap, which is his usual tradition. And it was uh, referencing the events in Orlando and very heartfelt. And that, and that to me is kind of the like live TV magic you get in award shows where it's like you're watching an emotion play out like something real that no one could have planned. Uh, that makes me like watching basically any award show. Mike, you're more skeptical.
2: <laughs> uh, well, I just, I mean, Lin-Manuel Moran, he's so talented and he's got such access to his motions and I want to love it. But I don't know why I get the gag reflex a little bit. I guess anytime someone makes themselves cry with a poem they wrote, I'm kind of throwing <laughs> up in my mouth. So you're not coming to my reading. That's what you're yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but But I think it's like the parts of me that are kind of revolted or I feel like arguably the I'm internalizing the bullies that I knew in high school who were like you theater you know dork mm-hmm. or whatever yeah James so,
1: Corden's whole opening thing was supposed to make you get rid of that I know theater and
2: yet, yet it didn't well. yet, there it was <laughs> Whatever, but the guy's insanely talented, you know. And Hamilton is a brilliant show. Into the Heights was a brilliant show, and uh, so I'm happy for him. But I will, I just can't. Don't make me look at his tweets.
1: Well, he'll probably be at the Oscars uh, for the music for Moana, which debuted its trailer during the Tonys last. Or yeah, that was like yeah. a real
3: synergy. synergy. Yeah, and he was yeah, singing yeah.
1: in the song, which like I don't, yeah. I don't really know I why mean... he's not in the movie, but yeah, he's uh, that egot's coming fast. So oh yeah, get get used. <laughs> to he's gonna to be, it. be the president
2: probably, <laughs> probably. which would be great. I'm yeah. fine with it it would be much better than some of the other options. (laughs) Just I don't have to read his tweets. I'm fine.
3: My wife's the reason anything gets done. She nudges me towards promise by degrees. She is a perfect symphony of one. Our son is her most beautiful reprise. We chase the melodies that seem to find us until they're finished songs and start to play. When senseless acts of tragedy remind us that nothing here is promised. Not one day. The show is proof that history remembers. We live through times when hate and fear seem stronger. We rise and fall and light from dying embers remembrances that hope and love last longer. And love is 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 love, is
0: love. <laughs> cannot be killed or swept aside. I sing Vanessa's Symphony. Eliza tells her story. Now fill the world with music, love, and pride. Thank you so much for this. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each
2: episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries.
0: Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly and Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts.
1: As our own Julie Miller wrote yesterday uh, at vanityfair.com, based on a piece from The Atlantic, it's going to be a really dark summer. And the relationship between the movie studios and the young people who are supposed to buy all the tickets is looking dimmer than ever. Uh, 2016 is probably going to sell the fewest movie tickets of any year in the last century. And then when you look even closer, moviegoers between 18 and 24 are uh, dropping off in movie ticket purchases faster than any other group. They're still buying tickets. They're still – young people are still the biggest group going to the movies, but they are more likely to spend time on Snapchat or Instagram or – name Silicon Valley company here. In the summer, when we see all these movies that are just aimed for young people, I mean, you see Warcraft, you see Finding Dory, which is a different group of young people, even Independence Day resurgence, which is, uh, you know, Richard, when you and I were children, it was aimed at us and now it's still aimed at us on some level. It gets depressing to realize that even those people aren't going to the movies anymore. So should Hollywood be panicking? Is all of this just, is the system kind of headed for a collapse in this summer is just more proof of it?
3: I think there's definitely cause for concern. And I think it, what it what it really relates to is just a ver- I mean, it's just more options now, you know, and I think that um, something that uh, these pieces have kind of highlighted is that people under the age of 18 are their Their movie going rates are going up and then people over 40. That same is true. It's just that it's just that like middle demo that like everyone cares about so much that's mm-hmm. like just really dropped off. And I think it's because you know, they, they have all these devices in their hands and, you know, Netflix and whatever. And, and I think that there might just have to be some sort of a change in expectation in terms of American box office. Like we might, they you know, in the same way that this, the television networks have had to kind of completely change their ratings paradigm, the idea of what, of how much you spend on a movie, how much you spend on marketing a movie might just have to change. I think it's interesting that internationally, especially Latin America and, um, you know, Asia that the markets are exploding, you know? So I think that we'll see as we already have a lot more movies that tend to kind of cater to that market, which Warcraft
1: is a huge example. It made like, Four times as much money in China over the weekend that it did here, maybe even more than that. Like it's a huge success.
2: Which means that even though it bombed here, it could still get sequel. Oh, certainly,
1: yeah. yeah. I mean, Pacific Rim was kind of the original example of that, and it kind of just squeaked by into having a sequel. But I think Warcraft is going to be like a really successful franchise, kind of like Ice Age, which continues to put out movies that we all kind of look and think, "Huh, that's still happening." But right. it makes a you know huge amount of money of its money overseas, which is you know a trend that's been going on for a while now.
2: Yeah. Well, I I think one of the things that that Derek Thompson writing in The Atlantic pointed out is uh, when you first look at it, you think, oh, the sequel strategy is failing. But it's like, no, actually, the sequel strategy is just the only thing left. Mm -hmm. And it's not working quite as well as it had been. But it's still, you know, Hollywood is still a giant business. And, you know, compares, as he put it, it compares favorably to any even sports thing you want to put it up against. But basically the only way to get butts and seats is to do is to create a giant tent pole fran- franchise and do a bunch of sequels which is a bit of a bummer for people who i think you know grew up maybe watching films that were more about individual original storytelling although we can't complain too much because so much of that is now happening you know in the kind of premium yep. cable um netflix even amazon realm yeah right? i think
1: it's less mourning for the world of like kramer versus kramer being a really big box office hit because tv has really filled that niche really well like if you're looking for stories about grown-ups having real problems like you can watch bloodline you can watch orange is a new black and it's more like like the original independence day which is like based on nothing, had a whole teaser trailer that was just like one shot of a spaceship and everyone got excited and was this kind of like out of nowhere Hit it cost a bunch of money. It was a blockbuster in the very traditional right. model, but it just it wasn't saying like you need to read ten years worth of comic books to understand what's going well,
2: uh, on. But everyone's optimizing based on successes like that, right? Mm-hmm. So now there's like eight of those a year, yeah. so they're not going to they're not going to blow out the way that the, yeah. the one and, did. But before.
1: all of them are based on something that you're already familiar with. None of them are going to be like, huh, I wonder what Jeff Goldblum right. is doing in this movie.
2: Yeah, because nobody wants to take the risk mm-hmm. of they're they're looking for which I get right. I mean, they're looking for built-in audiences all right we know that 20 million people play warcraft so even if this movie stinks like some group of them are going to come out and i have no idea how many people play i think it's like a hundred million (laughs) million. it's like the
1: population of many countries
2: yeah but like even if this movie stinks some percentage of them are going to come out you're always just like a lot of it is just trying to cover the sort of downside of the investment right yeah but i one thing that i think is interesting is what's really disappearing is the self-contained two-hour thing Mm -hmm. because really everything's moving to either a series of movie sequels or a series on tv but in every case actually turns out that when people like something they want to spend six eight ten forty hours with it not just have not just have that one experience mm-hmm. that's like completely unique to itself, yeah, and that is something i
3: I do mourn i mean because I think you know as much as there is a a plethora of good t v out there, I think that we have we've also kind of reached a point where like there's a reliance on that sort of slowness of storytelling that I think sometimes kind of doesn't end that well, you know, and I I, I miss the sort of assured two hour story that people are trying to tell us that is standalone and has no sort of, you know, anything proceeding or proceeding it like, you know, um, I, I miss that, you know, another, actually, Atlantic writer, David, David Sims, um, he, uh, has written a lot about about kind of peak TV and his problems with that. And I think that it, that's an issue that is interesting that, that that's where our kind of dramas are going, our Kramer versus Kramers are going, but also, that the big franchise movies are now of just elongated. I mean, you mm-hmm. really could just view the Avengers movies as, as, a you know, two seasons of a Netflix series or, you know, yeah. Spectacular or something. By so the way, know, we're talking
2: know. about the Tonys. Why doesn't Lin-Manuel uh, do Hamilton, too? I well, mean, this, <laughs> you heard it here <laughs> yeah. first, yeah. ladies and gentlemen. We're living it. This yeah. is, uh, Amazing.
1: America is Hamilton, too. The
2: next one could be Jefferson.
1: Well, this is what's so, so yeah. satisfying about something like Now You See Me, the original one, which came out in 2013, which this Atlantic piece reference that summer was Now You See Me and World War Z, which were these two like genuine surprise hits. Both of them have since fostered sequels. I liked Now You See Me too, Richard. You also,
2: too. World War Z based yeah. on a comic book. Wasn't it? We well, it's on a novel. Yeah. A graphic really novel. Different. Oh, just a novel. No, yeah. A really, oh, okay. It's
1: really different from what the movie was. So it's okay. like almost an original story. Okay. Now you see me as crazy and nonsense as it is. was a pure original story. Yeah, and it's it was, a
3: documentary about... Yeah.
1: Um, <laughs> about how magic is real. Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> but when something like that happens, you kind of just have to like feel gladness in your heart that some, it's possible for a contained two-hour story like that.
3: I think it is possible. And I think that if anything, there, there, if there's a lesson from this 2016, which has been particularly hard on the sequels. But you look at what those sequels were, a sequel to The Huntsman or, or Snow White and the Huntsman, which was popular, but not like huge. Um, and also
2: Lost Its Star.
3: Yeah, Lost Kristen Stewart. Yeah, um
1: got rid of her, depending on whatever behind a, the scenes. You know,
3: a, the Neighbors sequel, which, you know, sort of shifted its focus. And like, I don't know, the comedy is, is hard to sort of repeat. Um, I think the biggest one is Alice Through the Looking Glass, which, um, yes, the original Alice in Wonderland that Tim Burton directed in, I think, 2008, uh, 2009.
1: Two, nine, 2010, no, it came out right after Avatar.
3: Was made a billion dollars, but that was right at the sort of, you know, up, reemergence of 3D uh and, and interest in 3d but also 3d ticket pricing and and the the institutional memory is not good on that movie because that the the movie was not well received yes a lot of people saw it but not a lot of people liked it mm-hmm. and then to wait six years to do a big bloated you know kind of real obvious cash-in follow-up like that's kind of thinking that like i don't know maybe some group think in hollywood sort of broke down when the 2016 spring summer schedule was being built and it's like okay i think this year was probably more of an anomaly and hopefully a lesson of like in better curating what you kind of sequelize because not everything is going to work and that's been proven multiple times this year
2: i'm going to throw out one more theory here which is that storytelling is more original when formats are new and you brought up 3d and you know you think about like even FM radio, but before FM radio beca- became the world's most over thing, people didn't know what to do with it. My uncle was an FM radio host uh, in the 60s, I think, and he basically would like smoke a joint and like leave a side of an album on and sometimes forget to turn it over. Like they were figuring it out. The internet, we lived through <laughs> yeah. the internet being that, blogs being that. Now I think it's going to be VR, uh, mm-hmm. among other things. I think or if you Snapchat wanted to-
1: Or Yeah. or Vine or- right. uh, yeah.
2: Yeah, so if you wanted to do something really creative and inventive, you would do it there. And so on the one hand, it's like there's enough data now for the suits to come into Hollywood and be like, we need a tent pole. There needs to be this kind of, you know, audience built in if we're going to spend 200 million dollars uh, making a movie and another 100 million marketing it. But on the other hand, you can see why young people would be like, I'm not interested in this. Look at all the inventiveness that's happening with this incredibly si- simple technology. And then the really visionary people going, I want to figure out VR, like be the first to figure it out. And right. I'm really excited to see what happens in the next 18 months in well, that we've realm. We've seen so much of it at um,
3: you know, Sundance in Toronto. There's, you know, the, the, the presence of VR uh, technology there is 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 really increasing and already pretty pretty prevalent so and i think yeah hitting on the sort of what young people kind of turning away from from these kind of pre-packaged big movie spectaculars is that a crucial thing about a lot of the media that that young younger people are consuming it's it's direct it's personal it's you know it's kids in their bedroom or vloggers or you know whatever like they get to know lily Pons, the the vine star through a series of hundreds of little videos and and it's really intimate and it it i think it it removes this sort of sheen of celebrity and you know sort of unattainable untouchable stardom that, you know, the Hollywood industry has really, you know, relied on. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's obviously that's not going to go anywhere. But I think that younger people are less impressed by it. And I think that's something that they need to
2: figure out. But, you know, it's interesting, too. You just see these cycles repeating themselves because I just saw the news that VidCon is going to prevent Attendees from having direct access to mm-hmm. the video stars because of the the murder of that that young oh, woman, right? And uh, the
1: other murder in Florida over the weekend. That yeah. yeah, several to sort through.
2: Yeah. yeah, and and so you know, it just these cycles repeat themselves, right? It starts as oh, it's a cool thing. That's like, I mean, you know, the whole yeah. star system was invented as a publicity scheme to just make these people seem more interesting than they were right and they could still live in normal middle class houses you know in the middle of la yeah and and then it evolved into the bizarre scenario that we see today but no, just yeah, creating. and I
3: and I think that the way that they that the industry, the Hollywood creates new stars. I think that you know it's 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 always a kind of mysterious process. But some you know, but you kind of kind of watch the the mechanism working. You know, we're like, they're, okay, here's Ansel Ilgort. Here are his roles, and we're you know we're going to put him in, and we're going to put him in the romantic drama. We're going to put him in the action movie. We're mm-hmm. you know that formula seems a little bit more vague uh, online and, and you know, so the top tier YouTube talent at VidCon for very valid security reasons is not, you know, they're not going to be accessible by the fans but another few tiers down will be mm-hmm. and and, you know, I have been following YouTube a lot for the past few years and there's already maybe two new generations below the people I started watching who are getting just as big and I've never heard of them. You know, right. so it, the, the, the kind of process, like the cyclical thing you're talking about, happens just a lot sw- you know, mm-hmm. more quickly um, yeah. on, online. So we'll see. I don't know. I think eventually it'll probably be as institutional as Hollywood, but not for a while.
1: It'll be really interesting to check in at the end of the summer and see if *A Fel of Stupid Gloom* even pans out, and you know, watch *Suicide Squad* make five hundred million dollars, and then uh, yeah, everyone it feels great again.
3: That is kind of like the big. I think, um, you know, just looking forward, like in terms of box office hopes, you've mentioned *Independence Day*. We have Jason Bourne. There is the third *Star Trek* film coming out. *Ghostbusters*. Um, *Ghostbusters* obviously, uh, and 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 *Suicide Squad*. I would say probably my bet would be that *Suicide Squad*, even though *Batman v Superman*, which is in the same universe, had a, had a little bit of trouble. At the American box office, like I think that Suicide Squad is probably our, the the brightest.
1: Yeah, and light it's going to be depicted as like a surprise hit because it's you know right. Even though uh, it's been marketed for the last three years, like yeah, exactly. extensively, no, yeah. like it's been very <laughs> carefully put together. Yeah, you know, it's got Will Smith and Margot Robbie and all these, you know, people. Who Jared
3: Leto's people. Joker thing, which has been like just some weird confluence of PR strategy and like weird method stuff. You like kind it's of just. I yes. secretly
1: yeah. feel like you've seen him play the Joker in four movies already.
2: Yeah, I kind of feel like I, I know. I all a couple Vanity Fair videos, I think, <laughs> yeah. from the New Establishment Summit. Actually, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah it's, he's using us as part of his long. Yeah, it's viral
2: marketing. He's no dummy. I hope it's Ghostbusters. That'd be great. I don't oh think god. it will be, but yeah. that would be nice. Well, that's
1: going to be a whole other conversation of the uh, the women uh, trying to stake their claim in summer blockbuster season, and the... I,
2: it's going to be like a Bernie Bros situation. Oh my
1: god! I guess it already no, it's, is. it's already so much worse than that. It's uh, yeah, that's 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 definitely a narrative we'll be following. Well, this
3: okay. maybe it'll be Florence Foster Jenkins. Mm,
1: that
2: will was. be it. Five hundred
3: million. There you go. Shocking. <laughs> nobody. All from,
1: all from the buzz campaign that started right here. If
2: you heard it here first.
1: Oh my, oh my we go we're going to take a look back at oscar history inspired by this week's new release finding dory which is a sequel to finding nemo none of us have seen finding dory yet so we'll uh, we'll have to save that conversation for later but uh, uh it won the best animated feature oscar for the films release in 2003 no surprise at the time but what's interesting is looking back at the uh, best picture race that year which is more fascinating than i was giving it credit for so i wanted to go back and uh, re-arbitrate that uh, so mike and richard of the nominees in, for the films of 2003, what should have won Best Picture? Your choices are Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, which won? Lost in Translation, Master and Commander, Mystic River, and Seabiscuit.
3: Wow. That's such a...
1: What a crazy group, right? It
2: really is. It really is. Um... This, this was the kind yeah. of crowning, like, Lord of the Rings. Yeah, because it had been nominated.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. it yeah. got
2: the the payoff for
3: three movies. Right. And
1: everyone knew it was going to win. Even
3: though it's, yes. I think, the weakest of those three. I think a lot of people think that. Mm, um, yeah. With its, you know, 45-minute ending. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I think that to cap off what was Peter Jackson's kind of magnum opus, like I think, sure, like give it give it that. But yes. But if if I was if I was just viewing these in a vacuum, you know, separate of, of context, this is going to be a weird one. I would I would give it to Master and Commander. I loved. I think Master that movie is exquisitely done. I, I think it was supposed to be more of a series that never happened. Yeah. I, I think it's probably and I, he's a he's a favorite of mine, Peter Weir. I think it's maybe the last great movie he did. And uh, yeah, I so I I would give it to that. I think that Mystic River. Um, I have my feelings about Clint Eastwood movies. Sea biscuit. Fine. Um, Lost in Translation didn't work for me then. Oh, yeah. Still doesn't work for me mm. now. Even though I like Coppola and Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson, but <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Master of Commander. That's my pick.
1: Well, when you see Mystic River, there maybe it, if it had won, The Million Dollar Baby couldn't have won the year after, and then you know all of history gets changed.
3: Well, then Annette Bening has an
2: Oscar. Yeah,
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's how that works. Yeah.
2: That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I it's, it wouldn't be Lost in Translation for me either. Even though I liked it a lot, I also I remember the first time I saw it the credits rolled and I thought what a snotty little movie like at some <laughs> level the whole thing was just like, I'm so great that this guy is just obsessed with me. And I like lead him around for a whole movie. And then at the end, I'm just like, I'm not actually interested in you. Like that's the that I'm sure is a very real felt experience for a lot of women. But I, I, there was a part of me that just couldn't find a hmm. foothold in that yeah. film. As nice as the performance was, it was a, that was the Bill Murray comeback performance, was, right? Yeah. I mean, that yeah. was great. Seabiscuit. Yeah, I don't know. I think I Mystic River was great but so insanely bleak and dark but I remember Sean Penn giving some really hilariously great performances is that well. my
3: daughter in there
2: yeah yeah
1: yeah, yeah. Tim Robbins that, won uh, his Oscar for that
2: right Tim Robbins won his Oscar
3: for that yeah, yeah. A, lot of, a lot of Boston accents how yeah, well, well, the Boston
2: I, I, accents work for you
3: uh I mean, I think I think my, my mom and I, we saw that movie together. Uh, we still quote the Laura Linney or or, or mock the Laura Linney accent where she, at the mm. end she's basically like doing like some bizarre Kennedy or X thing, she, you know, very, oh, well, you know, don't you know, don't the worry more, about like, it. Lady you know, McBeth yeah, scene. it's very like, yeah. Yeah. Where she kind of reveals her sort of darkness. Yeah. Um, that's a bad accent. Sean Penn's is fine. But yeah, that movie is so De bleak and turgid and just sort of like eh. insanely dark. Um, yeah. So I wouldn't have, have gone for that. But people were super into that movie that year. Yeah, they so. were.
1: I did not like it much either. I would stick up for Lost in Translation. I don't know that I would give it the Oscar. I think Lord of the Rings was probably dessert. And I, I liked Return of the King a lot. But I feel like it's the most indelible of these movies. Like it has lasted in pop culture in a way. Like you still remember Scarlett Johansson and Bill Murray and like yeah. the gifts of them pop up on the internet and the, the mood of it. Just to have it be A a movie directed by a woman that is feminine, that is not The Hurt Locker. It's really like it's a romance, kind of. It's about emotions and people. I, I like that. It's an anomaly in Best Picture, especially at this time when it was just That's five true. nominees. Like, it's not even, you know, like, The Help was a nominee that was directed by a man. But, yeah, just to have this kind of really different kind of story making in Best Picture, I like celebrating that.
3: Yeah, and looking at, you know, its competition, like, it's this very small, sort of artsy kind of interior movie, gorgeous filmmaking, one of the best soundtracks of
2: its decade, I think. Yes. And, um, you know, so I, it certainly has its strengths. It's but, probably yeah. the one I would watch most willingly right now, to tell you yeah. the truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even though I have my... Issues with it, but I mean, right. it, 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 on the other hand, it makes you grapple. I mean, if you're grappling with the issues, you kind of care in a way. Like I don't really care about Sea Biscuit one oh, way or another. Like yeah. I know
1: that I saw Sea Biscuit. I don't. Yeah, I don't remember yeah. anything about
2: it. Yeah, Tobey Maguire horse. He Chris red Cooper, hair? Right. Yeah. I, and yeah. and literally the thought of watching the Lord of the Rings the Return of the King is just I couldn't possibly. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, really? I've There's I've watched no the way. other two, Two Towers and the original one. I don't know one, that I like, ever saw it. Met actually, multiple Return times. The
3: and the third oh. one I've just saw the one time in the theater. I've never seen yeah. it. Wow, Yeah. Guys. Well, I got
2: I actually just after the second one I was just like, "Okay, I get it.
3: I get oh, it."
1: Oh, yeah, you were you never you
2: never Yeah. yeah. In. I don't you know. know. And not game big musical number in the so third one. Yeah. Lynn Manuel Miranda, very young. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah, reads does, a sonnet at the end.
1: Fantasy does not usually work for me, and I love the Lord of the Rings movies. I, I love the phenomenon of it. So.
2: It just seemed like trees were fighting for like six and a half hours, and you know, at some point there are it's no trees in the
1: third one. Okay, barely yeah. any trees in the third one. Yeah. By movies. the way,
2: I read the books as a kid and was a hundred thousand percent swept away. Maybe but it just s- got it's just too much. Maybe it's finally time for you to it's see the Lord much. of the Rings. I don't know. Okay. You
1: gotta see Jurassic Park first and then see Return of the King. Okay.
2: There's a lot I got to see,
1: guys. Yeah.
2: I <laughs> oh, I should confess.
3: Be if, if we're doing this, and you you mentioned Finding Dory. The cat I've never seen Finding Nemo. Mm. Yeah, you know, I was um, I was traveling through Europe on sort of like you know a backpacky you know uh, summer trip with friends from college. Or and and it came, when it came out and it was this big phenomenon. And I remember like being in an internet, internet cafe in Prague and being and reading like the EW box office report and being like I can't believe I'm missing it. And then by the time I got back, people were done talking about it. And, yeah,
2: this is yeah. what I keep trying to tell Katie about being too cool and busy with your cool life <laughs> yeah, to right. watch some of these movies. I was you know? stoned yeah. in spend... Amsterdam. And, yeah. 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 Like, yeah. Wasted on good drugs. Didn't watch <laughs> Finding Nemo. Yep, sorry.
1: Uh, I mean, I saw Mystic River on a plane. So, I mean, I'm not saying that I was uh, catching up with everything at the time. Right. I, I did see Seabiscuit and what a load of good that did. Me. <laughs> so glad I saw Seabiscuit.
2: Yeah. You need to watch that again tonight. Oh, we'll God. have a report next week.
1: All right. <laughs> we'll, we'll do our homework. For <laughs> the authors of 2003. I'm, I'm so sorry. See, I, I suffer from short-term memory loss.
2: Short-term memory loss.
1: I don't believe this. No, it's
0: true. I forget things almost instantly. It runs in my family. Well, I mean, at least I think it does. Um, hmm. Where are they?
1: That does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thank you, as always, for listening. And please rate and review us on iTunes if you can. It really helps us find new listeners. You can find all of us at VanityFair.com and on Twitter. I'm at Katie Rich. Mike?
2: Mike oh. underscore Hogan. And Richard? Uh Rye Laws.
1: This episode was produced by Kristen Meinzer and edited by Tim Einenkel with special help from Sam Dingman, who has left us for Los Angeles this week. Thanks, as always, to Lara Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. And this week's award for the sexiest night in a skyscraper goes to Richard Lawson.
3: I was in the elevator going up with Carol Kane, which was really exciting. And then on the way out, I was in the elevator with Miss Streep.
1: try another taste. well i don't see why that seemed
2: perfect to me
3: i'm chris murphy i'm richard lawson
0: and i'm hillary busis we are from vanity fair still watching podcast next up we're watching the new hbo show the regime madam chancellor let's keep the gloves on this is not a confrontation we're just saying what's true
3: Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil.
0: We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way.
3: New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs.